Hello, and welcome back to the Exhaling Words podcast, your language podcast where I talk for however long I really feel like it, and I hope some of it makes sense to you. My name is Aaron, and I will be your host. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been talking about what causes us to study language and what is relative difficulty in terms of languages. And while a lot of these topics are important, and I've mentioned wanting to discuss this more, I kind of wanted to take a break from that for a minute. Um, I've been moving, and my brain is in a lot of places, and I don't know, I just felt like I needed a moment away from these sort of deep thoughts about why we learn languages and, you know, the struggles behind language learning. And I just wanted to, to do something kind of fun. So I have a friend who will remain nameless, unless after talking about him on this episode, he tells me that he wants his name revealed, in which case I'll share it on Instagram. But he's currently studying Armenian, Eastern Armenian. And he made a post today or yesterday talking about the difficulty and the frustration as a native English speaker in distinguishing between the differences in aspiration and voicing that Armenian has. Now, before I get into what this is specifically, let's talk about these terms. What is voicing? What is aspiration? For those of you who have studied linguistics or at least some of the more technical side of these uh, phonetic terms, this is kind of review for you, but let's go through it quickly. Let's start with voicing. Voicing is the concept that when we pronounce a sound, our vocal cords vibrate at the same time. So for example, if you hold your fingers up to your vocal cords and you pronounce the letter P and just say P, 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 your vocal cords don't vibrate. Now you might feel them vibrate a little bit as you move from the actual enunciation of the P and into the enunciation of the vowel because vowels are naturally voiced. They, they have to vibrate in order to produce a vowel. Whereas if you hold this up and you go and pronounce a B, You'll feel the vibration during the B, so buh, 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 buh. Your vocal cords are vibrating at the same time. This is what we call in linguistics in phonology, voicing. So when your vocal cords vibrate while pronouncing a, a letter, this is voiced. And if your vocal cords don't vibrate, this is voiceless or unvoiced, or uh, in some situations, they'll just call it plain. This is considered the default. Now, the other term that I just mentioned is called aspirated, or as a concept, we call it aspiration. Now, aspiration is the amount of breathiness that comes with the enunciation of a sound. So, English does not actually distinguish between aspirated consonants. Um, we have different types. We have unaspirated and we have aspirated, but we don't distinguish between them on a phonemic level. And again, I feel like I need to pause here and define the word phonemic. So phonetics is phonetics and that sounds. Phonology is uh, sounds specific to a language, um, which is still different from phonotactics. And that's another thing that, that, that we can get to another day. Phonemic distinction means that these sounds carry separate value within the language. So, for example, if I have the word pole in English, and then I have the word bowl, that changes the meaning of the word by voicing that initial consonant. So, this is a phonemic distinction. Now, if 
for example, in English, we didn't have this distinction. Pole and bowl would mean the same thing because the, they would be considered regional or accent variations or something of that sort. So this is what I mean by phonemic. So English has a distinction between voiced or between aspirated consonants and unaspirated consonants, but it's not a phonemic distinction. So if we aspirate a consonant, it doesn't change the sound of the word, doesn't change the meaning of the word. If we unaspirate it, it doesn't change the meaning of the word. So where do we find aspirated and unaspirated consonants in English? The most obvious place for 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 people learning this concept is in word initial consonants. So let's talk about the word top. Like, you know, a top that you spin or the top of a mountain. When we say top, there's a little bit of breathiness that comes with that T at the start of the word. And if you hold up a piece of paper in front of your mouth while you say this, and you say top, don't overblow it, don't say top, but just say top, you'll notice that the paper moves slightly. And this is because of the, of the aspiration of the initial T. Now, if we pronounce the exact same word, but we put an S at the beginning and we have the word stop, like stop the car, we'll notice that the breathiness at the end of the T disappears. So again, if you hold the piece of paper up in front of your mouth and you say stop, the piece of paper isn't going to move after the T. And so, for example, if I were to add aspiration to that C, I would say stop, 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 as opposed to stop. Or vice versa, if I remove the aspiration from the word top, it would become top. Now, because English doesn't usually have unaspirated consonants at the start of a word, the word top sounds almost like a D for a lot of English speakers, like it's dop. Or it just sounds like I have an accent, like maybe I'm a native speaker of a language that doesn't have this word initial aspiration. And there are a lot of languages that don't have this word initial aspiration. Spanish doesn't have aspirated consonants. So like when you say tomar, it's not tomar. And this is one of the ways that you can tell like um, somebody who's not a native speaker, even if they have good pronunciation of vowels or something, they might still aspirate their word initial consonants. But it's not tomar, it's tomar. And that the has no, has no breathiness after it. It has no aspiration. Okay, so that's what aspiration is. And as a quick aside, I want to talk about ejectives because I do think we'll get into them, although they're not a standard feature of Armenian. Ejectives are the next level of extremity after this. So an ejective is when you don't actually allow any airflow while enunciating the consonant. Um, what it is in a more linguistic standpoint is so it's a non-pulmonic there's no air and there's a glottal stop so this sort of uh, oh uh, uh, of this of this catching of the throat if you want to think of it that way immediately after the consonant and then the air flows and I understood this linguistically when I first learned it but I could never get myself to do it right and then I saw somebody on the internet explain it as it's like beatboxing and that's exactly what it is so you have top and you have top and then you have top and uh and uh and uh and so if you hear that there's sort of this stop after the initial enunciation of the consonant and there's no air coming out at that very first onset of the consonant 
It's followed by a glottal stop, and then there's a release of air. This is an ejective. This is a non-pulmonic. Okay, so now that we've had our five-minute crash course in linguistics and in phonology, although there's so much more than that, let's get back to Armenian. So, modern Eastern Armenian, and actually classical Armenian as well, Kudapad, had a and has a three-way distinction in both the stops and in the affricates and i'm not going to take the time to define stops and affricates right now sorry so what this means is for example with the letter k or k there is a voiceless unaspirated form there is a voiceless aspirated form and then there is a voiced form form isn't really the proper word here they're, they're separate letters they're separate sounds so there is a letter k which is voiceless and unaspirated. There's a letter k, which is voiceless and aspirated and is always aspirated no matter where it is. And then there's the letter g. Okay, so k, k, and g. And this applies all throughout. So you have k, k, and g. And then for dentals, you have t, th, and d, or t, t, and d. Sorry. Um, for labials, you have p, p, and b, and those are the three stops. And then there are also um, affricates that do this. So we have ch, j, and j, or ch, ch, and j, if we're going in the proper order, and um, t, t, and z. Okay. Now, this is hard for English speakers. Even if an English speaker can get over the K or the T row, for example, they often struggle with the CH and the Z. Um, so when you think about it, so you have like a TS and then you have a TS with the aspiration and then you have a DZ. So Z, Z, and Z. And you have a CH and a CH with aspiration and then a J. So CH, CH, and J. And learning to create this distinction can be a real struggle. Or learning to hear it can also be a real struggle. And I remember when I was in my classical Armenian class during my master's degree, my professor was really like particular about making sure we could do these sounds when we were reading texts, even though, you know, we're reading things from the eighth century and or earlier. And it you know, it doesn't matter that much because what we're reading is, you know, functionally a dead language. Um, but he was very particular about this. And so he really got on our back. And one of the things he told me was, if you can't do the plain forms, the k, the t, um, the p, and the j, and the t, do them as ejectives, which I didn't know what they were either. So then he taught me ejectives. So, you know, if you can't do them as a k, and a t, and a p, do it as uh, uh, and because uh, then you'll really notice the difference. And so that's sort of what I did. And then I just softened it. And I eventually got used to saying and Now, I want to take a small aside here and point out that modern Western Armenian no longer has this distinction. Western Armenian just has voice and then a voiceless aspirated, which for an English speaker is way easier. Um... Now, uh, I'll be honest, it's a little bit complicated because they're also flipped. So what is voiced in Eastern Armenian is voiceless aspirated in Western Armenian. And what is voiceless unaspirated in Eastern is voiced in Western. 
and the voiceless aspirated in Eastern is also voiceless and aspirated in Western. So there are still those three letters. There's still ka, ka, and ga in, in Western Armenian, but they're pronounced ka, ga, and ka, which is frustrating. Um, I've been told that speakers of Western can get used to Eastern and speakers of Eastern can get used to Western. My Armenian isn't good enough to really even consider trying to learn another dialect, but one day I hope to get there. But anyways, what I want to think about here is how this is difficult for an English speaker. Now, one of the things we always talk about in language learning is the human body is the human body. We can all produce all these sounds. You can learn to make tones. You can learn to make retroflexes. You can learn to make ejectives. You can learn to make clicks. But sometimes it takes a lot of effort. You know, on a, on a much more maybe relatable example for some people, I couldn't trill my R's with my tongue growing up. So what I'm talking about here is sort of the Italian sound of r, r. I could not do it. And so when I learned Spanish, instead of saying r, I would do a trilled or more like a gargled r in my throat. So something like, you know, we always talk about saying pero versus perro. I would say perro with the r in my throat. And I got away with it. Nobody said anything. Maybe my accent sounded slightly off, but I did it and it was fine. And then I learned Arabic. And in Arabic, there is a letter that is R. And then there's also a letter that is R. And then when that letter is doubled, you get R. And so I had to learn to make a trilled R with my tongue because I couldn't replace it with R because R is its own letter. So for example, in the verb to teach, if I want to say I teach something, I say udarris. But if I said it as udarris, that's a separate letter. I don't even know if that's a root in Arabic. Darasa. I don't think so. If it is, somebody let me know. But that would change the whole meaning of the word because it's a different letter altogether. So I can't say udarris. I have to say udarris. And I had to learn to say r with my tongue trilling um, up against sort of my the back of my teeth, or in between my teeth and my alveolar ridge. Um, in order to actually accurately pronounce Arabic. Similarly, Armenian has that sound. It's a separate letter. There's the letter Ura, which is actually more like a zh, a zh. There's a, sh, a certain amount of aspiration with that R. And then there is the letter R, R. And sometimes it's hard for me to say R, um, especially when it's at the end of a syllable. It's one thing when it's in between two vowels, but to put it at the end of a syllable, like, like the word spjork, which is the Armenian word for the diaspora, or the specifically, I think it just is referring to the Armenian diaspora, not any diaspora. This isn't spjork. This is sp. So the first of all, the p is aspirated spjork. Okay. So you have an aspirated p, you have an aspirated k at the end, and you have a r right before the aspirated k. And that's hard. That's hard as a native English speaker to sit there and try to say. Spjork, spjork, spjork. And so, I mean, we get away with saying spjork. And, or like a diaspora in Armenian, spjorkahai. Or, you know, so try to say that spjorkahai. Spjork, I, I can't do it. I'm butchering it at this point. So I'm just going to stop. And so I just say spjorkahai. But technically my P loses its aspiration because my English accent is coming in. So rather than saying sp, I'm saying sp. 
And I'm completely not trilling the R at all. I'm not saying or. I'm saying or. Spjorka. Hi. Now, at least I'm maintaining the aspiration on the K, but that's one accurate sound out of three. So that's failing at this point. But this is this is part of the difficulty. And this is why I think Armenian sometimes is more difficult than people think it is, especially for a native English speaker. I don't think that Armenian is a crazy difficult language, but it's not something that's very easy for an English speaker. There's a lot of these sounds and combinations of sounds that we're not used to. And then from a grammatical standpoint, there's cases, which we're not used to as native English speakers. The word order is a little bit different. And so there's a lot going on as native English speakers that really can sort of confuse us or all start to pile together to feel overwhelming. So why do I bring this up? One, because a couple weeks ago, I was talking about relative difficulty. And this is one of those things where Armenian is an Indo-European language. So it is distantly related to English and a lot of the languages that native English speakers, especially people from the U.S., study. And it can still be quite difficult. And, and like I just said, there are other factors in that as well. But just the pronunciation alone can really be a struggle. And so... Sometimes I think this is where linguistics actually really helps people. You know, I, I've i talked to a lot of people over the years, and I often get into my linguistic sort of rants, talking about phonetics, talking about grammatical points, whatever, and people get really sensitive about it. And they're like, oh, well, you're overthinking it, and it's too complicated, and you're making it too hard. I've, I've gotten this a lot with like Arabic, for example, trying to talk about the patterns, especially from native speaker professors. They'll be like, oh, well, we don't teach that. That's too much, and it's too complicated. But sometimes understanding the system that comes with the language makes it more approachable and makes it more attainable for a student. So in the case of Arabic, understanding the system of patterns and roots makes it feel like there's logic to this rather than you're just constantly looking at words going, I don't know how the hell we ended up here, but yeah, sure, I see those letters in it. And I'm not just saying that in a facetious way, But I'm being honest, like I've had those moments, I've had students have those moments, and being able to look at a word and go, this word is clearly related to this root, and I can see that it's in this pattern, which often, though not always, has this meaning, and so I can logically sort of deduce what it means, or I can understand where we get the definition from, that makes you feel like you actually have some sort of understanding of this language when you often feel like you're just lost. Similarly, I think that with phonetics... We can often feel like a language is more approachable. When you're just trying to hear the sounds of Armenian and replicate them, and especially if your teacher is not a teacher who's telling you, okay, well, this is voiceless and this is voiced and this is voiceless and unaspirated, you might be sitting there going, I don't hear the difference between ga and ga, or why can't I just say ka all the time and why do I have to say this letter ga? or this letter ka, you know, that that exacerbates the situation. And now in the situation of my friend, his, his teacher is a linguist, um, or at least studied linguistics, so I have no doubt that she's doing a good job with him. But I've sat in classes with professors who just couldn't explain some of these things to me. And so I think making ourselves aware of this really helps. Now along that vein, since I defined... Um, ejectives, and I have time. Let's talk about ejectives because ejectives are fun. So, 
Adjectives exist in a couple dialects of Armenian, or so I have read and heard, although I have not witnessed them directly. Although I did meet somebody who I swear was pronouncing something as an adjective, and then I asked them, and they said no, and I'm not from that area, so I, I don't know. However, other languages spoken in the Caucasus do have adjectives. Georgian, for example, and Accession, and a lot of the Northeast Caucasian languages, uh, they all have adjectives, which is beautiful. So let's talk about adjectives. <laughs> um, so in Georgian, for example, they so in Georgian you have k aspirated, although it can be unaspirated in certain situations, and you have g, but then you have k, and you have t and d, but then you have t, and p and b, but then also p, and it keeps going. You have ch, and you have j, but then you also have ch, and you have and you have z, but then you also have t. And then my favorite is, you don't have any other forms of this, but you also have the letter k, which I just love saying. Now, the complication of this is that you don't always pronounce it as k. Sometimes it gets softened, and so you have a word like kava, and so kava is kava. But then you have a word like the word word in Georgian, which is sitkava, sitkva. And so this is sita, ta, with an adjective t, and then ka, and then va, or which is sometimes here it's softened to a va. So you get sitkva or sitkva. I've never heard it as va. I think va is harder to do here. So usually it's going to become sitkva. The kla. Uh, there, it's not a full ka. Uh. It's not. It's not so harsh as as like when you hear kava. It's kwa. It it softens slightly. And so that's sort of a natural feature of the letter ka uh, in Georgian that it does sort of in certain situations, especially in word medial forms and vocalic forms, it does soften a little bit, and that helps ease pronunciation. But imagine that you're studying Georgian and nobody explains this to you. Nobody comes to you and says, hey, these are ejectives and you need to pronounce them this way. But instead, they just sit there with you and they just keep saying, sitra, 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 sitra. And you're supposed to somehow replicate that. Eventually, you might figure it out. I mean, this is how we learn our first language. You might get there, but it's going to take time and effort and a lot of mistakes. Whereas if somebody sat with you and said, okay, let's talk about an ejective T and say ta, and let's talk about an ejective uvular stop and say ka, and then let's put them together and get ta, and then add a V after it and get ta, and then add a C in front of it and you get si That just makes the learning process so much easier. It makes the language so much more approachable and helps so much in making us feel like we actually can do something with the language. Similarly, when I teach Arabic, for example, this is how I handle the pronunciation of a lot of the emphatic consonants. So, for example, Arabic has a letter ayn, which a lot of people struggle with. It's kind of like it's a bad example, but it's kind of like gagging or choking or something. It's, you know, you're squeezing your pharynx, you're squeezing your vocal cords and then releasing them. And so you get this sort of ah, ah, ah. so you're squeezing them. Okay. 
And it's one thing to just say ah. Most people, if they get used to the ah part, they can give you an A after it. Ah. But how do we get students to say oh or ah? That's hard. And especially because students sort of start to associate the ein with the vowel a, and you get this ah ah ah. What you start getting is you get people say au aulum. No, Rolum. Or Omri instead of Omri. Just Omri. You go from the I straight into the U. This takes practice. And again, some people would take the approach of, well, just hear it and you'll figure it out. But personally, I prefer the idea that maybe we need to focus on these things in order to make the students feel like they actually have some sort of control over this. And so, for example, my Arabic teacher, when I was first learning, and I struggled with this, was how do I do ein plus a short I, or ein plus a short O, or even a long I and a long O. So how do I say eh, and how do I say ro, and how do I say a, and how do I say ro? And she had me sit in her office and go, ah, eh, o, ah, eh, o. Ah, eh, ooh. Ah, eh, ooh. And now it's not a problem. You know, you can have things like Ahmed, um, Omar, Elm, Ulum, um, Isa. You know, and I'm not saying Aisa, I'm just saying Isa. You go straight from the Ain into the Yeah. This also helps with dealing with students who who are over enunciating consonants. So, for example, I had classmates who would make their eyes so strong that it became incomprehensible. So, for example, I was in the West Bank, I was in Bethlehem, and I was with a group of friends, and we were looking for a restaurant. And one of the older guys in the group tried to go up to a man on the street and asked him where a restaurant was. And first of all, he was one of these students who like insisted on trying to use like rural Jordanian accents, which I guess flies in Palestine, but... If you, I don't know if the person's not used to it, they're not used to it. And so he goes up to him and he looks at the guy and he goes, Hunak Mata'am Garib. And the guy looks at him like, What the hell did you just say? What? And he says it again. And he goes like, Hunak Mata'am Garib. And the guy's just staring at him like, What? And so I walk up and I'm like, Fi Mata'am Adib? Or Fi Mata'am Hun? Or something like that. And it's not even the fact that my friend said Garib instead of Adib or Qarib. It's the fact that his his ayn in the word Matam, it's Matam. Okay, there's an ayn. That's fine. But he was over-enunciating to the point where he was like Matam. And he was like stretching, stressing the ayn. And it sounded almost painful. He's like Matam. And there are times when you do this in Arabic. I think in an earlier episode, I talked about like when Arab moms shout at their children or whatever. And this ayn becomes a fricative and you get ah. But when you're asking somebody where a restaurant is, that is neither the time nor the place to use that sound. And so taking the time to work with the student, and now I'm giving teaching advice, but what I really mean here is just taking the time to practice and become very aware of what are the linguistic processes behind the sounds that we're making or behind parts of a language that are particularly difficult, really sometimes do ease our understanding and our learning of the language. So that's really all this was, was I had a note that said unaspirated, aspirated, and ejectives in Armenian Georgian in a session. Not that I really talked about a session. And this turned into 30 minutes of me talking about 
random things. Um, but that was kind of what the point of this is. So yeah, go learn a little bit of phonetics and go learn a little bit of linguistics because I, I, I really do think that this isn't just me being a nerd. This is true. Like understanding some of the linguistic features or some of the more linguistic approaches to features of a language that you're learning can really make all the difference in your learning process. So with that, thank you for listening. As always, if you want to get in touch with me, my name is Polyglot Aaron, P-O-L-Y-G-L-O-T-E-R-I-N, on all major social media or at gmail.com. And I will see you next time.